Good morning. Let's come back together, find our seats. It is so good to worship together this morning and to see everyone this morning. Thank you for braving, braving what they say is the most severe storm in generations. Except I remember rain like this when I was young, like weeks at a time. So I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you catch what a lot of the songs talked about this morning? Just seeing if you were listening, you know, those, because, because if you caught it, you might have been a little annoyed. Nothing? A lot of the songs talked about waiting. Waiting on the Lord or waiting, just waiting. I will wait. Um, how many of you like to wait? Yeah, we are not a people that like to wait about just, just about anything. You know, we, traffic slows down to 65. Think about it. Um, traffic, so we get upset, you know, and we, we want everything quickly. And waiting, one of the problems with waiting is expectations that are deferred, right? When we expect something and it doesn't happen, we get a little frustrated. And maybe it's because we wanted it on that time frame. Maybe we start to doubt if it will happen. You know, my, my wife gently encourages me on this because a lot of times with the kids, I would, especially when they were younger, I would say something like, well, maybe we'll do this. And then, and then if it didn't work out, the kids would be like, you promised. I'm like, no, no, I didn't. I said maybe. And, and Susie would come alongside and say, when, when you say maybe, this is what they hear. They hear that we're going to do this, and they get their hopes up, and they get their expectations up. And, and so I've been working on not, not over-promising because then it's this expectation that is deferred, and that is hard. That is hard for any of us. One of the things that as, as, we, um, as I counsel and as I work with people, one of the expectations that is often the hardest is when dreams are deferred. When we have dreams of how something will turn out or hopes of how something will turn out, and when that is deferred, it can be, bring discouragement, it can bring anger, it can bring bitterness, it can be really hard. And, and there's, there's three major areas that I think we struggle with when, most when they're deferred. One is when we're praying for our family members or our children to come back to the Lord or come to the Lord. And that can be one of the hard times when that's deferred. I think another, another area that's hard when it's deferred is in, in health issues. When we don't see God answer right away with certain health issues or certain things that are going on in our lives or in loved ones' lives, and we don't understand what God is doing. And I think a third area where we struggle with, with promises deferred or expectations deferred is finances. Why, haven't, why hasn't God given me a job? Why aren't my finances better? Why is this happening? Or, or for us, every time we get a little bit saved, it seems like something would break around the house. And it would be just enough of what we had saved to cover it. And, and in our heads, we're like, praise God, he gave us enough to cover it. But our hearts are like, no, we had that saved for something else. And now we have to wait longer for that thing we were hoping for, that, that dream that is deferred. Sometimes some of these things we've prayed about for years. Some of you have prayed for relatives to come to Christ for years for loved ones to come to Christ for years. And it can feel over time like God isn't listening or God doesn't answer. And we can give up. We can be discouraged. But that is not what God wants from us. As I was preparing for today and thinking through the text in Acts 24, I was also thinking through some of the Psalms that we've read. And, and the Psalms of David especially. And if you remember David, as a young man, he was anointed king. And did he, did he then go take the throne the next week? No, he had like 10 years that weren't the greatest years because Saul was trying to kill him and chasing him around, trying to kill him. And he's hiding in caves and he doesn't have a normal life at all. And he writes things like this in Psalm 6. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And you see his struggle with a promise deferred. Where is God in this? My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Many of you ever ask God how long for something? 
Yeah. That's where the psalmist was. How long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And this is where it turns, and the Psalms always turn. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And we see incredible honesty, which, which is so needed in prayer. Incredible honesty of where his heart is when this promise, when this expectation is deferred. But then we see him come to the end of the psalm and basically say, I will wait on the Lord. I will trust God. I will wait on him. And the language there lets us know this hasn't happened yet. He's not on the throne writing this, looking back. He is still waiting and he is still trusting. And so this morning as we come to the text, I want to look at it both from what happened to Paul, but from this idea of waiting and ask, what do we do in the waiting? What do we do when those prayers that seems like haven't been heard and they're not answered? Do we shrivel up? Do we get angry at God? Do we lose faith? Do we give up? Or is there a different path that God would have us take? See, we wait on the Lord with hope because he has not abandoned you. He is at work. And we look for ways to see how God is at work and to be part of it. And that's our theme of the morning. And as we turn to Acts 24, and you can turn there with me, we're going to look at Paul again. And as we are are quickly speeding to the end of Acts, Acts 24. And and if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you. encourage you to bring that in. If you don't have one at home, please take that as our gift to you. But Acts chapter 24 And just to bring you up to speed to where we've been, because here's the thing. I love going chapter by chapter like we do and verse by verse, but it can be really easy to miss the bigger story. And we want to see the bigger story here. And so we can look at Acts chapter 24 and dig into the different arguments that are made. And we will, you you know me, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. But the bigger picture here is still the idea of Paul has been promised by God you will go to Rome and preach the gospel. That's his heart. That's his dream. Some of you like to travel. Paul wasn't doing it just to travel, but he wanted to share the gospel in Rome. To him, that was the end of the earth. That was doing God's work where God wanted him to do it. And a few weeks ago, we saw that God had promised him, don't worry, you will preach the gospel in Rome. And since then, he's been attacked by a mob, arrested by a mob, incarcerated in Jerusalem, a death plot last week to kill him, people lying in wait to murder him, and he was sent to Caesarea to Felix the governor, which is a long way from Rome. And today, we pick up the story in Caesarea before Felix. And just to to give you the end end of today's chapter, he's going to be stuck here for two years. Stuck in prison for two years wondering about the promise of God. Is God still going to do this? Is God hearing my prayers? And so we get to see what does Paul do in the waiting? And his example is a wonderful example to us. What do we do in the waiting? How do we wait on the Lord well? And so we come to to verse 1, and we, we come to start to think about what do we do with a promise deferred? And so the first point there is, Paul had a reason to be discouraged, a reason to be discouraged, yet more false accusations from the Jewish leaders. At some point, if I'm Paul, I'm like, enough is enough. Because this is yet again, false accusations, his character being attacked, people trying to to win a court case to execute him. So this isn't just whether he gets a ticket or not. This is a capital offense, and people are trying to, to, um, to kill him. And so, reason to be discouraged, yet more false accusation from the Jewish leader. Let's look at verse 1. We'll go 1 through 9 on this section. 
And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before their, the governor their case against Paul. So remember, Paul's just been swept by night to Caesarea, 470 men to protect this one. And God, God keeps his promises. And he's there, and now the Jewish leaders within five days need to come and present their case. So they come, but they bring a lawyer. And Tertullus is a lawyer, counsel, who they think will give them a better shot at winning this case at a Roman court, which is what it's which is what Felix is holding here. So in verse 2, And when they had been summoned, or when the case had been called, you could, you could think of it that way, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. What's half his argument? Buttering up Felix. And now this is normal in the cases of the time. There's, there's words for it. Praise and flattery is how you start it. He's kissing up to the governor. Because he thinks by doing that, he's going to get a better resolution. And so, I mean, just look at some of the things that are, that are said. Since through you and you and we enjoy much peace. Just right off the top, you need to know this is false. You know, we talked a little bit about Felix last week. Felix was known for no peace, for brutality. He was a slave that had been freed, and even the historian said he brought that attitude into his ruling. And so he was known as a brutal ruler. He was known as an incompetent ruler. And just to, just, I, I know I mentioned this, but just to think through how things were going with peace, it took 470 men to protect one. That's not, uh, that's not a, an area under the rule of law. And so th- these, are, these are almost comical. Through you we enjoy much peace. Since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, said no Jewish leader ever, <laughs> unless they were in court. I mean, this is... Sorry for those that might be lawyers. He's a lawyer. And so he's working the case, and and he's making this happen. So right from the start, we have these things that aren't true to this man who has a reputation for corruption and violence. Then we get to the charges in verses 5 and 6, which aren't many, but there's three. You can group them into three charges. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirrups riots among all the Jews throughout the world. That's the first charge. He's a troublemaker and an insurrectionist. A plague there doesn't mean that he has COVID and he's spreading it around. It means a a pestilent fellow, a public nuisance, a troublemaker. But then you you pair that with the the rest of that that thought, that that phrase, he stirs up sedition among the Jews. He's stirring up riots. And the wording there is they're accusing him of treason. And to a governor who already was having trouble keeping the peace, but his entire job and his life depended on the fact that he keeps the peace in the Roman Empire, this would have resonated. This would have been an important one. And so um, he starts with this. He's a, a man with a plague. He's an insurrectionist, stirrups riots among all the Jews throughout the world. This is going to challenge, the, the argument is, this is going to challenge the, the Roman rule. Now, was it true that the riots sometimes followed Paul? Yeah. But did he cause them? Maybe you could argue indirectly, but, but he just preached the word, and then troublemakers came behind him and started the riots. That's what happened in, in Jerusalem. The Jews from Asia, we read, came. These are from Ephesus and some of the other towns they had been. They followed him to Jerusalem. He is doing nothing but worshiping, And they start spreading lies about him and started a riot. And so right from the start, yes, riots did follow him. One one author said, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or revival. Sometimes both. But it wasn't him that was starting it. It was people opposed to the gospel. 
And so many of these charges have a little bit of truth in them. They're almost true, like any good lie. Don't, don't take today as a way to lie better. But they weren't true, and they were false charges. So then he goes to the second charge there. Um, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Nazarenes was a, a term that Romans and some others sometimes used for Christians because Jesus was from Nazareth, and nothing good comes from Nazareth, and so it was probably a little bit of a derision here. Um, but they're like, he's a ringlinger of the sect of the Nazarenes, and what they're trying to do here to understand the culture, they're trying to position Christianity as something other from Judaism. See, Judaism was allowed in the land in Roman law. No other religion was allowed other than, than emperor worship, but no other new religion was allowed. And so the, the Jews here are trying to say, he's a completely other thing. He is breaking Roman law by, by being part of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this one, again, it's true, sort of. Was Paul a leader in Christianity? Yeah, yeah. But were they a completely new religion trying to destroy things? No. In fact, Paul, we're going to see in his argument, argues that not, not only are we not a new religion, we follow the same God, and, and we're basically completed Jews or we are, are, are um, because our Messiah has come and we believe that Jesus is our Messiah. We're the same. They just are still waiting for their Messiah. And we know he's already come. The charge here, though, the wording here has an implication of, of something more, that this sect of the Nazarenes, this group, was also a group of lawbreakers and insurrectionists. So the idea is, is he's a ringleader, and, and that's where some of the wording comes from, that notes someone that's in charge of insurrection that's bringing together a group against the Romans. Completely false. Completely false. In fact, if we look at the teachings of, of Jesus and if we look at the teachings of Paul, it was teachings that was to pray for your government, to come under and live peacefully, and to, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so these are just false. The third argument there, the third um, charge against him, verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Not quite, well, the profaning the temple isn't true. That's already been disproven in Jerusalem. Remember, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the, the, the holy, holiest um, area of the temple, and, and he hadn't. And that had already been proved, but that's their that's sort of their Jewish charge here. The Romans don't actually care about this one. But um, they're trying to find whatever they can to have Paul be found guilty. He didn't do this. You can look at chapter 21, verse 29. The charge is because they saw Trophimus shopping in town with Paul. And it had nothing to do with the temple. So that is their whole case. But the lawyer finishes it in verse 8. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him everything that we accuse him of. And so, so basically a little bit of gaslighting here. If you talk to Paul, you're going to find it's all true. And then verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So they had brought some people along that would be false testimonies. And they're in the corner saying, yep, yep, that's what happened. That's what happened. But what's missing? Any evidence? Okay, so this is a court of law. No evidence at all. And so Paul now is on, on trial. His life is at stake. And yet another set of, of false charges. And at some point, like I said, I, I think he's got to get tired of it. And, and he has this promise from God, you're going to be a great witness in Rome and here he is stuck in Caesarea in the, in the, the corner of the, the headquarters of the Roman government. And I could see him saying, I'm done. I'm done. Again? Really? Early on, we taught our kids some sign language. And um, one of the ones we taught them was this. I'm done. All done. And I can remember um, one of the times one of my kids had done something they shouldn't have done. And I was disciplining and, and explaining the way. 
And all of a sudden, in the middle of my talk, they go. I'm like, oh, no, you're not all done. I am not all done. But I could picture Paul feeling that way. Couldn't you? Again, read this for the facts of the trial, but also look at the bigger picture that these are real people going through real situations. And the reason the Holy Spirit has put it in his word is so we learn from those examples. And so then we get to verse 10. Point number two in your notes. Now there's an opportunity to declare Christ. Paul had a choice. Do I shut down? Do I give up? All done? Or is this an opportunity to declare Christ? And so Paul's confident, Paul confidently and truthfully gives a defense. We have Paul's confident and truthful defense. Starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, and so Felix just looks at him, nodded, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul also starts with some kind words. But his words are truthful. And the most he can say about Felix is, you've been here a long time. Right? You've been many years over the judge of this nation. But then the next phrase is important. It tells us that he's not all done. I cheerfully make my defense. And, and even in the waiting, even though Paul's already gone through things since this promise, and the promise seems unfulfilled, he cheerfully makes his defense. And that's one of the things we can learn from that example, is even in the waiting, even when we're frustrated, even when we don't know what's, what's going to happen, can we cheerfully take opportunities for God? Can we look for those opportunities? Can we be kind and cheerful in the waiting? Because most of us, if we're honest, when we're waiting, we get impatient and anything but kind and cheerful. But Paul here, that phrase just stuck out to me this week. I cheerfully make my defense. And so he's about to seize an opportunity to point people to Jesus. He hasn't given up hope and he finds strength in the Lord to say what he's about to say. And so then he goes charge by charge. And he gives a legal defense. He doesn't need a lawyer. Paul is an incredibly um, intelligent individual that thinks this way. And so verses 11 through 13, he gives a charge. He answers the first charge of insurrection and stirring up riots. He says, you can verify. And so the Jews just said, okay, you ask anyone, you'll find out the truth. Paul says, okay, let's go with that. You can verify. Go ask people that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And so Paul here, he begins his argument by, by talking about the brevity of time. It was just 12 days ago I came to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, he's already been in custody for five to seven days. So you subtract that from the 12. He was only in Jerusalem maybe five days before any of this happens. So one of his arguments with the 12 days is there just hasn't been enough time for me to assemble an entire mob, create a riot, and try to overthrow the Roman government. Really? Five days in the temple? That's his argument there. And, and, and they would have known he would have been in custody for most of that time. It's been not, not more than 12 days when I went up to worship in, the, in Jerusalem. Also, that's a statement that they can go get witnesses that are still there. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bring up against me. And so he, he lists a couple things. He says, I was there. He admits that. But I was there to worship. I went up to worship in Jerusalem. It was the Feast of Pentecost. And so there was a reason I was there. There, there was no other motives. Um, there was no stirring up the crowd anywhere. And his argument is, you can actually go ask the people. Didn't happen in the temple. Didn't happen in the city. Didn't happen. And that's how he ends it is, there's, there's no proof. They made all these wonderful charges. There is absolutely no evidence. In a Roman court of law, you were required to have evidence you, to, to convict. So you had to have solid evidence. You also had to have eyewitnesses um, to convict in a Roman court of law. And that's going to come up in one of the other arguments. So he answers, it wasn't insurrection, it was worship. 
This didn't happen. Then in verses 14 to 15, he addresses the second charge of being leader of the Nazarenes. Now, this is an interesting one because he was a leader in Christianity. And so in, in verse 14, we have, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And so he begins uh, really quite a brilliant defense. And he, he says, okay, this is true. He acknowledges what he can. He clarifies the name. The Nazarenes isn't a good name. We're usually called the way, which is sort of fun because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he acknowledges, he, he finds common ground with the Jews there and says, I worship the same God. I, I follow the same law. I believe in the same prophets. This is just a continuation of Judaism, a fulfillment of Judaism. And to the Romans, they, they would not have cared about a theological debate about Jesus and the Messiah. They just cared about whether you were causing insurrection. And so he, he admits what he could to being a Christian and uses that as a pivot to go to the gospel. Catch the next verse. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And in one verse, he goes to the resurrection, which was based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew the teaching. Especially we're going to find out Felix knows all about Christianity. And he's, he, he then expands the resurrection to say, it's going to be everyone. The just and the unjust. Everyone is going to have to stand before God and give account for their actions here on earth. Now that's a bold move. That's a bold move to now switch from a defense for your life to saying, by the way, you all are going to stand before God. But it's the right move if you're trying to find every opportunity to turn people to Christ. And so even as we read that today, No matter where you're at, whether you're a believer or whether you're trying to find out more about Jesus, every one of us will stand before Christ. And we will stand before the throne and we will have to answer for our actions here and our decisions here. And whereas we can go away and that can be a very scary thing to hear, the beauty of it is if we believe in Jesus Christ, he has paid the price for any of those actions that didn't come to the perfection of God which is just about everything we do. And so Paul is bringing this home. You're all going to be judged. You're all going to have to stand and give an account for yourself just like I am now. And he also, in his defense, says, really the only difference of us between us and what they're accusing me is the resurrection. And isn't that the defining difference of Christianity? that God himself was incarnated as man through Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is God himself as part of the Trinity, and that God himself through Jesus died on the cross for our sins and paid the price, and three days later conquered death, conquered sin, dealt with it completely, it's done. That's when it's okay to say all done and offers that to us. And so Paul here, in the middle of fighting for his life, starts to share the gospel. Oh, that we can be so bold. But this was his purpose in life, as it should be ours. So then in verse 16, he continues this thought of we're all going to be judged. So he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. I know I'm going to stand before God too, he says. And so I work to have a clear conscience. Then he goes to his third charge, verses 17 and 18. Now, after several years, and this is the the charge that he was defiling the temple. Now, after several years, it had been a while since he had been in Jerusalem. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And so here he's coming back to why he was there. I'm, I'm there to worship. He goes, by the way, I was bringing a gift of alms, and he was carrying a gift from the churches in Asia Minor, 
bringing a gift for the poor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going through financial hardship. He brought a gift to help people. And then his offerings were just the normal offerings that, that they were to do in the temple. There's these gifts to God, following the customs, following the laws. And so he says, I, I was worshiping and following the temple laws. I came to help people. I was not doing anything. And we know he wasn't actually even preaching in the temple. He was there to worship and help these men that were going through their Nazarite vow. And he said, while I was doing this, verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, which means he had gone through all of the laws and regulations to be pure, to be um, um, ceremonially pure before God. He goes, I I followed things because I love God, because I was there to worship God. And he he said, they found me purified without any crowd or tumult. He says, so this answers whether he was somehow defiling the temple. He said, not only was I not defiling the temple, I went to great extremes to honor the law and what God would have us do. And then he says, but some Jews from Asia. And this is where he brings, brings in some evidence, some proof of what happened. But the, some Jews from Asia, and you see a little line in your Bible, that's because there's, it's, it's almost like Paul brings it up. He's like, how much am I going to say? And, and he, he, he explains it a little bit more. They ought to be here before you and make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? By Roman law, if they're not there, there cannot be an accusation. By Roman law, if they're not there, Paul must be freed and declared innocent immediately. And so Paul brilliantly brings it up. By the way, the people that really have an accusation against me, they're not here. Now, why weren't they here? Because they had found out that Trophimus wasn't brought into the temple, that all the charges were false, and they split back to Ephesus and all their their regions because they're like, we got nothing. But the Roman leaders are still trying to, to pursue this. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found. They're not eyewitnesses, but if they are, let them say it when I stood before the council, when they inspected me. Other than this one thing, and, and Paul says, well, this one thing's true. And he comes back to the gospel. I love it. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among, among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And so he comes back to, it, it's about the resurrection. And that would have referred to not only the resurrection of people, which is through Christ, but Jesus' resurrection. And he comes back to the gospel because that is his heart. Basically, he says, if I've done anything wrong before a crowd of people, the prosecution would be able to bring forward witnesses. There are no witnesses. Therefore, there must be no wrongdoing. By rule of law, the case should be dismissed. And so then we get to 22 and 23, where the the case is dismissed, and Paul goes on his way and gets to fulfill the promise of God. Or not. Paul went through it. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way he knew about Christianity, put them off saying, oh, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So point number three, the wearying ruling, the wearying ruling. Let's defer this. Let's put it off. Basically, Felix knows he has no case. He knows he's supposed to turn Paul, Paul loose. But he also knows the Jews are going to be angry and riot and cause trouble if he does. So what's his answer? Let's wait. Let's find a good reason to wait. Now, Lysias, the tribune, he had already sent his charges with Paul. Remember that last week? He had already sent his charges. Felix already has those. There's no evidence that he ever came to Caesarea. There's no evidence that Paul was ever brought back on trial. This is just an excuse to defer. 
to put this off to continuance forever. Felix knows Christianity, doesn't want to get involved in the conflict between Christians and Jewish leaders. And so Lysias became a convenient excuse. We know that Paul now sits in jail, sits incarcerated for two years. To every possibility of draining Paul, of making him weary, of making him question God's promise. You can say, well, in in 23, at least Felix sort of threw him a a little bit of help and said, your friends can visit. And that's true. And, And I think God there was making it bearable for Paul, was making his plan bearable for Paul. And those friends would have needed to come and bring food and bring support because when the Romans incarcerated you, they didn't provide those things. And so they they cared for his needs. But think about this. How's Paul doing now? I'm going to Rome to share the gospel. This is my passion. This is my heart. Attack, false imprisonment, threats on life, false imprisonment, two years. This, maybe this is where we say I'm done. I'm done. Give me a good book and maybe a Roman subscription to Netflix. And we're good because he's in circumstances that are way beyond his control and his life is put on hold. And I thought about that because there are circumstances we all go through where it feels like life is put on hold, right? Where things are tough and and we're waiting on God for things or things that could put, put life on hold. That's how the last few years have felt at times for us. As with, with Susie's diagnosis of cancer and the fight for cancer, it would be so easy to just withdraw and say, this is what life's about. Life's on hold. But that is not how Scripture says we wait on God. That is not how Scripture says we respond to trial. And so then we get to 24 through 27. And I call this, this one promise expanded. Promise expanded. The promise deferred was really a powerful opportunity for God's work. And and Paul didn't know it at the time, but Paul didn't give up. He didn't put life on hold. He didn't binge on Roman Netflix. He chose to share the gospel and take advantage of every opportunity he had. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in in Christ Jesus. Little verse. Did you catch what just happened? Paul's in jail in in Caesarea. And I showed you the pictures last day. I think in your notes I put a picture with a, a little arrow. That's where he was for two years. Right next door to where Felix is ruling, where Felix is leaving. Felix's wife, Drusilla, comes. And they're like, let's talk to Paul. And they summon him. And Paul's going to tell them about faith in Christ Jesus. This is awesome. Now, now some background of Drusilla. She is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. This is the Herod from Acts 12 who took the praise given to him that, was like, that he was like God and worms took care of him. Felix had wooed her away from her first husband, king of Syria, who she probably married at 14 to 16 year old, years old. And Felix had wooed her away through someone posing as a sorcerer. And so they were married. She's probably about 20 at this point, just to give us some cultural background. Drusilla's great-grandfather is the Herod that tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Her great-uncle killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus. Her father killed the apostle James. She comes from a long line of people that hate Jesus And hate Christianity. And Paul uses the opportunity to tell her about faith in Jesus. Paul's promise was deferred. But God expanded that promise with opportunity. Verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment... Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Catch this. Three points that he talks about. And and this is an abbreviation of of a longer discussion. 
He talks about righteousness, which would deal with sin and the sin in their lives and that they're not right before God. He dealt, dealt with self-control. He's talking to a man, Felix, who had had three wives, kept dumping them for a prettier one, a man who gave in to viciousness, and he says, let's talk self-control. This is brave. This is daring. But this is what the need was of the moment for Felix and Drusilla to hear the gospel. And then he talks about coming judgment. So he's talked about sin. He's talking about their lack of self-control. And now he says, by the way, you're going to answer to God for that. This is the first part of the gospel, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all blow it. We all have fallen short of what God asks us to do. We all will be held accountable for it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. But then he goes on to share with them about faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. What was Felix's response? Did you catch it? He was alarmed. He was scared. He said, go away. And, and the wording for this phrase, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. It's basically saying, I need to stop for now. When I get time, we'll pick this up again. It's a statement of procrastination, a statement of holding off. And what's interesting is we know Felix knew about Christianity. We knew, know from this response that he was convicted and the Holy Spirit was convicting him. But sadly, we know that he doesn't respond in faith, but rather says, maybe I'll get to it someday. Maybe I'll get to it someday. Paul here has boldly preached the word. And Felix had knowledge, but not relationship with Christ Jesus. He was convicted enough to be scared, but not willing to make a change. Not willing to make a commitment to believe in Jesus. And so he put it off and said, maybe someday. Warren Wearsby tells a story, and it's just a fictional story, but of a meeting in hell. Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. It will never work, said Satan. People can look around them and see there's a God. Sadly, that one is sort of working. Second demon, I'll go and tell them there's no heaven. But Satan rejected that idea. Everybody knows there's life after death. And they all want to go to heaven if you're choosing. Third demon said, let's tell them there's no hell. Satan answers, no, conscience tells them their sins will be judged. We need a better lie than that. Quietly, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved your problem. I'll go to earth and tell everybody there's no hurry. And that lie won the day. If you are here with us today and you're seeking Jesus and you've never given your life to Jesus, there is no time to wait. Choose today to follow him. This is the best time to follow Jesus today, now. Learn from Felix and his bad example. Felix goes on in verse 26. Remember, we have two years to fill here. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He wasn't willing to let go of his sins, his self-control issues. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Catch that. He wants money. He's been convicted. But he keeps talking to Paul often over two years. Do you think Paul's still preaching the gospel? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's just no hesitation for him. For two years, Felix hears the gospel, and he doesn't respond. So then we get to verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And that was the story I told you last week where the Jews and Gentiles were arguing about some land and some other things, and there was almost a civil war. The Jews won that. Um, Felix comes in and comes down harshly on the Jews, ends up killing a bunch of Jews. He is now removed from Caesarea and removed from the region by the Roman government, all while Paul's still sitting in prison. And Portius Festus comes, and so 
new governor, usually leads to dismissal of cases or at least dealing with cases. Maybe some hope, but not really as we're going to find in the next couple weeks. Because then the sort of the summary of these two years, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. God's promise seems to be deferred but he used it to spread the gospel to the governor of the region, to his wife in the family of multiple Herods. Paul was waiting on the Lord, but the Lord wasn't waiting on his plan. The Lord was executing his plan. And Paul just needed to give and and go along. And that's what he did. So I end today just by... I'm encouraging us to think of what it does it mean to wait on the Lord? What does it mean to wait for the Lord to act? And, and sometimes we can think of waiting on the Lord, meaning I just sit here and do nothing and wait for the Lord to act. And that's not what we see anywhere in Scripture. But it's also not taking matters into our own hands and, and pushing God's hand to do what we want him to do. So waiting on the Lord always has some of these other connotations. I put a definition in your notes. It is actively obeying God and doing his work where we're at while trusting him for an outcome in the future. So it's not passive. It's actively obeying God and doing his work where we're at. Even if we're in the middle of a promise deferred, of unanswered prayer, of not knowing what the future holds. We're doing his work where we're at while trusting him for the outcome in the future. And that doesn't mean that the outcome of the future is going to be what we tell God it should be. Trust implies that I'm submitting to his view of the future, not mine. That's what waiting on the Lord is. With Paul, we we get the sequence again and again. And what should scream out to us is Paul is faithful. Paul continues to do God's work wherever he's at, even with a promise threatened last week, a promise deferred this week. I asked myself throughout this week, I said, man, this, this story with Paul just keeps repeating. Why, why do we have the repetition of the story? And I think it's because we are forgetful people and we forget what it means to wait on the Lord. And we get frustrated and impatient and want to take matters in our own hands. And so the Holy Spirit gives us Paul's example. How do we wait on the Lord? Keep reminding yourself that God is at work and that God has the better plan, not me. And so when we start to realize God has the better plan, we start to anticipate his timing rather than get bitter at his timing. How do we wait on the Lord? We serve Jesus where we are, even if it's in the waiting. And as we serve Jesus, even in the waiting, we're embracing his timing and saying, this isn't a promise deferred. This is where God wants me to work now. How do we wait on the Lord? Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep praying for that relative that doesn't know Christ or that needs to come back to Christ. Pray knowing that God hears and he will answer, even if it's different from what we want. And that comes to trusting his timing. Trusting his timing. How do we wait on the Lord? Don't waste the time, but keep growing. Read the word, read books, practice the spiritual disciplines and draw close to God. And then we realize we grow because of God's timing. We grow because of God's timing. Waiting brings strength from the Lord. Waiting brings calmness and serenity from the Lord. Waiting brings stability from the Lord. And waiting brings submission to the Lord. I'm going to end by reading Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. I think it's in your worship folder. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God. So he starts with how big God is, how great he is, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen? When we wait on the Lord, he gives the strength that we need. He gave the strength to Paul to confront Felix and Drusilla about their sin and say they need Jesus. He will give strength to you for what you're going through, for the things that you are waiting for. And we wait for a lot of things. We start waiting for a spouse or waiting for a job or waiting for children or waiting for retirement, waiting for grandchildren. I can wait on that a little longer if my kids are are here. But how are we serving God in the waiting? Waiting doesn't mean wait and then. Waiting says, I obey now and I wait and see how God's going to work. Let's pray. Lord God, we are again challenged by Paul's example. A man who went through more trials than I think anyone in this room have gone through, maybe a lot of us combined, and he kept going. And he kept serving and he kept proclaiming the word because that is the most important thing. Lord, help us to find ways to serve you where we're at, in the waiting. As we talk with doctors and nurses, Lord, as we talk with neighbors, as we look for work, wherever it is, Lord, help us to serve you in the waiting and find ways to glorify you. Because your promises are not deferred. Your promises come at exactly your time. And we trust you, God. In your name, amen.